if you or someone you love is an extrovert who loves being around people, loves good food and drink and the next latest excitement, starts a lot of books but maybe has trouble finishing them because you're on to the next good thing already, but you really maybe struggle with getting past superficiality and really dealing with perseverance to grow in the life of faith, you or the person you're thinking of right now might be a sanguine. That's the theme of today's episode. What can we learn about this personality type and how can we use that knowledge to become better saints, husbands and wives, parents? Welcome back to the Catholic Podcast. I'm your host for today's episode, Joe Heschmeyer. Uh, we're continuing our series on the temperaments, and I'm joined today uh, by my friend and boss, Dr. Troy Hinkle of the Holy Family School of Faith Institute. Troy, thanks for coming in. Thanks, Joe. It's always good to talk with you. So I was excited to get to interview you because you have uh, one weird aspect of your personality. We'll say one weird one, aspect. <laughs> That's a compliment. Uh, so in Art and Lorraine Bennett's book on the temperaments. One of the things they talk about in the foreword or in the introduction is how their editor, Todd Aglialoro, has this unique blend that's rarely seen and some of the ancients didn't think was possible, where he was a combination of sanguine and melancholic. And we'll explain what those terms mean. Right. Uh, and I actually, I know Todd because he, he now works for Catholic Answers, so I, you know, talked to him a little bit about this, but it turns out I got to know a second sanguine melancholic. So can you give listeners just a, a little sense of what it means to be sanguine melancholic yeah um can i back up for a second just talk about temperaments in general you know the name sanguine and melancholic and choleric and phlegmatic the four traditional classical temperament types comes from the greeks from an obsolete or antiquated uh, science they had Mm -hmm. based on uh, your fluid bodily fluids they thought that affected your personality so that might be antiquated but they understood that our personalities, the way we, we react, is typical. We have patterns, we have routines, we have habits. Typical ways that we will react to given situations. And they, they kind of narrowed it down into these four categories. And so a lot of people hear the four temperaments and they hear it as part of now Catholic spiritual theology. And they think, A, why are we barring from Greek pagans, or B, that sounds new agey. Why do we it's even a, care? It's actually very old agey. Yeah, it's very old agey. <laughs> and the one thing about the Greeks is they were pretty good about ascertaining reality, better than maybe our modern philosophers are today. And they were very clear, particularly once you get to Aristotle, very clear in their thinking and their categories. And they liked to categorize things so that we could understand. So they came up with these four classic, what are called temperament types, and you asked me more specifically about mine, melancholic sanguine. And they do seem polar opposites because a sanguine is considered the class clown, the party guy, the, the joker, the, the big mouth, mm-hmm. as well as the scatterbrain, superficial, that. The melancholic is seen as the ponderer, the um, introspective thinker, um, deeply philosophical, poetic, 
and uh, filled with anxiety and worries because they see that the glass is half empty Mm -hmm. and the sanguine oftentimes can see the glass is half full. Well, which is it? That's why it's such an odd combination. Mm -hmm. So to put it humorously, I tell my wife, since I share strongly both traits, I say, well, honey, you know, I'm I'm happy-go-lucky about my worries. I ponder deeply my superficialities, or I'll tell her I'm very outgoing with my shyness, and um, yeah, because that shows you just the paradox of yeah. the two temperaments. That's an interesting. How do you find those interact? I mean, all joking aside, I guess how how do those interact in your own person, your own life? You know, the one thing uh, uh, that I've noticed in my life is how one can come out in one given circumstance. Let's take a party situation. Mm -hmm. This is the best illustration. If I go to a party and I know a good many people, I am easily the class clown. I'm saying foolish, dumb things. I'm (laughs) ornery. I'm, I'm, I'm outspoken. I'll yell across the room. I'll do funny things. I'll intentionally embarrass myself. No problem. And I hear often, my poor wife hears often, where did you find this guy? Where did you get this guy? <laughs> poor Lori, you must be a saint, you know, things like this. Now, same scenario. I'm in a party. I don't know anyone. Right. Make it worse. They know each other. Mm-hmm. Reverse everything I just said. I'm now a clam. The show might be closed, open just a little bit. I'm less relaxed. I'm much more silent, much more aloof. Mm-hmm. and um, if you were hanging out with me, you'd, if I went to both parties back-to-back, you'd say, what gives? Was he on something the first party, <laughs> or is he on something now? And the answer is no. It's how my personality reacts to given situations. So that shows you kind of the strange yeah, paradox. Absolutely. That's a team. good. I think that's a good illustration. And I think it's a good reminder, too, that you know we talked last episode, we're talking for these next four, about the four temperaments. But... It doesn't mean someone's going to say, "Oh, this perfectly describes me." These are right. these are general traits. Exactly. These are dispositions, and you might find you have some sort of balance there. Right. Uh, but I still think it's important to talk about, even though we can't reduce someone uh, to you know one of these four types. You know, it, like you would have noticed by now if there were only four types of people. Like right. if everyone right. could, was easily reducible to four interchangeable personalities. Right. Someone would have noticed this by right, now. Right, right. But as it is, like these traits are kind of recurrent. So you can say, oh, yeah, even in the stories you just told, like I know someone who's totally like that at parties or one or both of those halves. Right. And and that's helpful for getting to know about them. And I, so I think it's helpful in the areas of parenting and the areas of marriage and the areas of spirituality. Mm-hmm. So you also, if I'm not mistaken, have kids of all four temperaments. Is that right? Right, right, right. Yeah, this is interesting. I have six kids, and I'm mostly sanguine melancholic. And again, it depends on the day or the circumstances to which one predominates, because I honestly cannot tell you which one does. I also have a strong choleric uh, nature. My father and my sister are choleric. So my wife, on the other hand, is very phlegmatic, melancholic. Mm -hmm. So because of that, we have all, I see all four temperaments in six of my kids, or at least combinations therein. Mm -hmm. The most difficult for me was figuring out phlegmatic because uh, I have two kids that have that predominant trait. That trait is much more laid back, much more unemotional, less willing to share, more reticent to engage in deeper discussion. But they will do it 
you have to figure out what's the code that unlocks the door to their heart today. And, and uh, one of my kids, um, that code changes every day. So to try to figure <laughs> out what are the questions that'll help her open her heart and share is very difficult. My wife is very good at asking these questions for all my kids. I am less adept because I'm less patient. I'll ask you two or three questions, and if you give me yes or no answers, I'm pretty much done, and mm -hmm. I'll go do my own thing. Not a very good, not good <laughs> to do with phlegmatic children. You need to be patient, continue to ask questions, try to find out what is the key that unlocks them today, and then they'll begin to share themselves. Because two of my children who have phlegmatic traits are extremely intelligent and uh, um, insightful. But they're not going to just give that to you. In fact, I'm not even sure they realize how insightful they are. It's something you have to draw out of them. So this was helpful for me to learn these temperaments, particularly with my two kids who are phlegmatic. Yeah, that makes total sense. I'm glad you mentioned that example. So I think it's something that, it, you know, what works for one kid may not work for the other. And I think it's easy as parents to compare or to judge or to, you know, say, oh, this parent's having great success with their kid and we're really struggling is there something wrong with me? Is there something wrong with my kids? And it may just be learning the language of the other person. Right, right. Everybody has passions, something that uh, draws out their excitement and their enthusiasm, even the phlegmatic. <laughs> you just have to figure out what that is or what that is today. It could be music. It could be a particular artist. It could be literature. It could be art. My my daughter, who's phlegmatic, is also melancholic. So melancholics are very poetic and creative. So you have to really uh, work at, at figuring out uh, uh, what that is. My son, who's phlegmatic, I have a hard time figuring out if he's phlegmatic, melancholic, or if he's phlegmatic, sanguine, or if he's just all three. He's just hard to figure out because he's very engineer. In fact, he's an engineer, mm -hmm. chemical engineer at K-State. He's very, very intelligent, but in a technical sense. I, I actually, it's really funny you mentioned engineers because one of the first times I really saw this and saw everything you're describing was doing some evangelization at the University of Missouri, Rolla, which is an engineering school. Right. So I went down there with a group of guys from St. Louis, and uh, was in seminary at the time it was a group of seminarians, and it was maybe a, about a half and half split between introverts and extroverts. Right. And in our other experiences, going on normal college campuses, the extroverts had a much easier time striking up the conversations and getting the ball rolling right. to meaningful conversation that would that would lead to talking about God. Right. And here, we, you know, the extroverts, just totally were striking out. We right. just couldn't get a conversation going to save our lives and would get these kind of one-word responses and they didn't seem interested in anything we had to say. And we were just like, what is going on here? Meanwhile, the introverts who'd been, a lot of their time had been spent praying for, you know, would go in these teams of two. One would talk and one would pray. They had been much more comfortable in the praying role than the talking role. Right. Well, we had to switch. And it turned out when they were talking about engineering, they were talking about this common passion. Suddenly, uh, these people who were more phlegmatic, maybe more melancholic in some way, they would open up and they'd get started talking about that. And then once that trust was kind of built up, uh, they could have a good conversation about God, about religion. 
Um, but it, it didn't happen right away. You couldn't just lead with that, or, or right. the clam image that you had is, is pretty accurate. Right. I think when you're dealing with, with phlegmatics who tend to be more reticent to share their emotions, or melancholics who ponder things deeply but are more introverted and can be a little more negative, phlegmatics tend to be um, not very reflective of themselves. They don't spend a lot of time, unlike melancholics, pondering how they think or feel about things. So when you ask them questions about themselves, they've never really thought about that. <laughs> and now you got to give them time. Melancholic, on the other hand, spends too much time because I share, <laughs> share this temperament, yeah. thinking about themselves and how they think about things and can easily be trapped. And But they're not going to share themselves with you until they trust you. Yeah. So in a new setting, a fresh setting, your fresh new face, probably you're not going to drill down very deep. You're going to have to build that relationship. When you do get there, they will share. It's like a gold mine. It's There's like an entire diamonds. world in there. That they... Yeah, because you realize, wow, this person is really intelligent and really insightful. Phlegmatic can also be that way, but you need to give them time to think about a question they've never thought about before. Yeah. Oh, how do I feel about X? Or I, how, what do I think about this deep subject? Particularly if they're very technical, they want to process it. Now, same two scenarios. If you don't talk to them about themselves, if you talk to them about their activity, a phlegmatic will be much more willing to discuss if they're an engineer, their engineering work, if you understand it. They're not too interested in breaking it down for you. But if you can understand <laughs> right. their language, they'll talk about it quickly and easily. So too melancholic if you end up talking about something, a piece of music or a piece of artwork or a literature or a poem or something that they really, really enjoy, and you happen to mention that, they'll talk about that yeah. without knowing you very well because they themselves are removed enough they don't feel so vulnerable. Yeah, they don't feel as exposed. Yeah, You can right. learn about them a little bit indirectly kind right. of in that way. Exactly. And, and build up the trust where they feel more comfortable right. eventually exactly. sharing more. Right. But let's talk on the other extreme. <laughs> Uh, specifically about sanguines today. Okay. So what I want to do, uh, just kind of give an overview for listeners, is I want to go through little bits from Father Conrad Hawk's description. Sure. Uh, we talked about his book. It's a 1934 book on the temperaments and spiritual life. Right. And uh, just kind of give you a few of the traits he identifies. And you can say, do you see these things in yourself? Do you not? How do they play out? How do they not? You know, like what, sure. what does that look like, maybe practically speaking? You bet. Um, so I want to give you first, he has 16 just core traits. So I'll, I'll name each one. You can say, agree, disagree. Here's what it looks like. Okay. So also listeners, as you're hearing these, maybe say to yourself, like, does this describe me? And if you start seeing a lot of these where you're like, yeah, this really captures who I am. You're probably a sanguine. Yeah. Right. Uh, so number one is self-composed, seldom shows signs of embarrassment, perhaps forward or bold. Yes, definitely. Because um, for a sanguine, you can use embarrassment for humor. <laughs> humor is your, it's both a shield and a spear. It protects you, but it also lets you in into another because it's disarming. Yeah. So you don't experience embarrassment as much um, because you can make a joke about it. Particularly if you're growing in virtues. I want to talk to you about that in a little bit of how the virtues interact with these. But the virtue of humility in particular uh, helps uh, for that first one. 
you're bold in that you like to um, experience uh, a level of conquest on the relational level. And I don't mean male-female conquest, rom romantic conquest. I mean that you you like being liked. Yeah. So you like to connect with someone and re and, and realize that, hey, they, they like you. They like you back. There can be kind of a sense mm -hmm. of victory right. in that. Right, right, okay. right. Uh, number two, eager to express himself before a group, likes to be heard. I mean, that seems like exactly what you just said. That's right, that's right. And, and for me, doing the work that I do is, and the work we do, Joe, we're in front of people a lot. And you want to be able to be bold and expressive and creative, and you want an audience. The danger is, this will go back into the discussion on virtue, you don't want to get so full of yourself that actually undermines your your um, effectiveness, especially if you're evangelizing or forming others in the faith. Yeah, I mean, it seems even if you're not, even not professionally, just personally, right. the need to be the constant class clown and, and seeing your worth in that and all of that is right. a negative road to go down. That's right. If it starts building up pride if it leads mm -hmm. you away from a, a deeper identity in Christ. Yeah, and you end up insulting others or they feel put off by you. And right. so it becomes self-defeating. Yeah, absolutely. Um, number three, uh, prefers group activities, work or play, not easily satisfied with individual projects. Yes, yeah, so this is the interesting, strange interplay for me between sanguine and melancholic. Very much, I much prefer being with a group, uh, much prefer on a Saturday night or a Friday night, a small group where we can enjoy deep personal conversation, we can laugh, we can have a scotch, uh, sanguines enjoy the spirits. Um, <laughs> but um, there, are and there are times and projects when sanguines prefer that. The melancholic side of me comes out when I feel very strongly which is many of the time, about how this or that should be done, which case I'd rather do it myself. You just stay out of mm -hmm. my way. Let me do this. And that could also be the choleric. Yeah, I was going to say, that's one of, the, one of the interesting overlaps between a melancholic and a choleric, where a melancholic tends to, because it's uh, this reflection of the deep ideal on their soul, mm -hmm. whereas like a choleric is just used to being the most capable person in the room, at least in their own estimation. Right. So for different reasons, they kind of come to the same... Right. So you can see choleric place. melancholic actually are, are an odd good fit yeah. for that reason. Yeah. So uh, f for me, uh, yeah, typically I would say that's the case, the group projects and, and, and group affirmation, but, but there are times when that's not the case. All right, number five, uh, good in details, prefers activities requiring pep and energy. Yes, uh, good in details, definitely not. I'm surprised that Father Hoke has that under there mm -hmm. for a sanguine. Sanguines are, we're not ADHD, but it's hard to engage our mind for any length of time on one thing. And thus it makes, for me, makes it hard for me to pay attention to details. Where it comes in is where I want it done right, meaning how I want it done. Then I can be more careful about details. Uh, so that's where I, I remember reading that when I read, because I've, I've read this material before, and I thought, hmm, that doesn't sound like sanguine to me, but... He's yeah, more I, advanced. He was a he was a rector of a seminary, so and a spiritual director for a number of years. So I won't argue with him. Just for me personally, I don't find that to be the case. No, I, I actually I think I totally agree with that because one of the other things he's going to talk about is superficiality. So I want to know what he means by good in detail, given that 
he thinks it it sits well with also describing a person as superficial. Yeah. Uh, I think what he means is um, for sanguines do like we're a shotgun approach. Melancholics are a rifle approach. Melancholics <laughs> yes. want one thing. They want to know where the target is. They want to work just on that one thing. A sanguine will get bored with mm-hmm. that. A sanguine likes to have a lot of oars in the water, likes to do a lot of different things. And then when for me, when I see one thing I'm really passionate about, then I want to zero in and mm-hmm. make that one boom. I want to, I want to hit that and make it, make it great. So in that regard, the shotgun approach, you do need, and because uh, sanguines, that we do like the the affirmation that comes with the job's well done, and to get that, you're gonna have to pay attention to your details. So maybe that's what he's getting at. In that regard, I, I can see that. Just in general, with me, paying attention to detail. You you know, yeah. Carrie, ask Carrie about me <laughs> and my pay, my ability to pay attention to detail. I've driven her crazy through the years. <laughs> Number six impetuous and impulsive and it says his decisions are often and then in parentheses usually wrong yes yes so uh, sanguine people um are very impulsive can be very intuitive in which case they can be right the problem is because the sanguine is like a bumblebee flying around from this flower to that flower that's how my Thoughts, my head mm-hmm. can be the thoughts in my heads can be at times. I lose track of when I'm wrong, but I keep track of when I'm right. My melancholic <laughs> yes. is like, see, I told you I was right in my perception of things, and to then the cholera because now I want to I want to charge ahead and I want people to get out of my way. So um, uh, it's so it, it's weird what what goes on in, inside of me, but. Um, but that 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 kind of confirmation bias. Yes, right. You, you remember all the times that it goes well, and so That's then you right. think it always goes well. The busy bee knows when I've landed on that flower and I got pollen and that worked. Mm-hmm. I don't pay attention while I land on those three flowers and there was nothing there. So, and, and that's an interesting, I think, the blend there. Because I think if you were a pure melancholic, you would be more attuned to those failures. Right. Uh, the and sense less, of being maybe... I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Oh, no, no, go ahead. And you're, you're tuned to the failures and less willing to take risks. Right, whereas like that sanguine side is very ready to take risks because right. failure doesn't sit in as deeply, and so you're on to the next thing. And whether you made a fool of yourself in the last one or not is almost irrelevant to you. Right, right, exactly, exactly. Uh, number seven, keenly alive to environment, physical and social, likes curiosity. Absolutely. Let's start with environment and then curiosity. Um, environment. Give you an example. I was out to dinner last night with some one of my uh, daughters, grown daughter, and her boyfriend, and and uh, some of my kids were still at home, and we we were in this restaurant, and it was very, I thought, sterile. The paint job was very white, mm-hmm. and lots of windows, and of course it's January, so it's very cold. So I could see immediately my mood change mm. the environment affected it and then what mood predominates in that situation my melancholic mood where i'm not as uh happy-go-lucky joke mm-hmm. much more serious and morose and hence the conversations were much more serious last night whereas if we'd have gone to the first restaurant that we wanted it was full uh, we couldn't make reservations and i know that other restaurant it had been just the opposite because i know that other restaurant the environment really affects me Another example, uh, psychologists talk about seasonal affective disorder. I for sure feel this. When it's cloudy, days in, I feel the environment. And that's when my melancholic tendency mm-hmm. will predominate. 
for sure. Uh, so, uh, so environment d- definitely has that. What, what, what was that? And then curiosity. Is the other curiosity. One. So I, this is where the two temperaments come in handy for the work that I do, theological and philosophical. And personal, relational, because we also have to connect with people. So I'm very curious. When I don't understand something and it bothers me, I won't rest until I have mm-hmm. it sufficiently figured out in my mind. And having it sufficiently figured out is not just, I understand this puzzle piece fits in this gap. I need to know, but what does the bigger picture look like? I've got to put together enough other pieces of the puzzle where I can see, okay, now I have a sense of how and why that piece fits there. So that question got answered, but I, could, I wasn't satisfied with that answer. It just, it embroiled my curiosity until I had to fill out more pieces. So when teaching theology, that is so necessary because we have such a rich tradition and heritage. And then when you start realizing how the church has thought out so much of this, it only inflames your passion all the more of appreciation and awe of the teachings of the church. And then that's what you want to share with others. That's a, the, the positive side of that. You know, I, I'm a choleric sanguine myself. And I can tell you the downside is when you, you get on Wikipedia or something and then you read one thing and curiosity leads you somewhere. And, yeah, you know, 20 true. articles later, you're like, how, why am I reading about the history of rabbits in Australia right, or whatever right, the case? Right, right. You know, that's the one advantage of me being a little bit older than you, Joe, is I grew up without the Internet. And I'm glad. <laughs> yeah. Because if I had grown up with it, I would definitely be that way. I grew up without YouTube. Hence, I don't have the habits of getting on right. those very often. If I had that habit, or I could easily have that habit, if I'd have forged it in my teen years when my curiosity was really at a peak. So I'm glad, I'm grateful yeah, that the Lord's yeah, timing for me was as it was, that those are not vices that I have to contend with. As well, I'm glad you mentioned that too, because, you know, we started to allude to the fact that your temperament is maybe a starting disposition, mm-hmm. but so many other things can come into play. Right. The technology of the day, culture. Uh, growth in virtue, but also right. even growth in vice. So if you go down a, right. a really bad road, you might start having temptations to things you would never have have just been naturally inclined to. Right. Uh, and and also just things like family environment, those sorts of things. So oftentimes when when we ask people to identify a temperament, it can be helpful to say, well, what were you like as a kid? But there's right. an exception to this. Right. Like if you had a domineering household where you had to conform to a certain personality type, uh, whether it was like stop running around so much or you need to smile more or whatever else, right? You know, the natural disposition you had was always corralled. Right. Well, then maybe your childhood disposition wasn't, or, you know, what it looked like wasn't right. wasn't what your natural temperament yeah, is. Yeah, right. Well, let's talk about those four things because I think all four of what you mentioned, nature, nurture, vice, virtue, mm-hmm. those four uh, categories impact our temperaments immensely. Let's start with nature. Uh, there's a great book called Spiritual Theology by Father Jordan Amen, A-U-M-A-N-N. He's, he's gone on to his eternal reward now. Brilliant Dominican. Uh, I, I've met him and had some courses with him when I was at Franciscan University. He used to come out and do some mini sessions every year when I was there. And I got to take a course on spiritual theology where we talked about these temperaments. And he was adamant that they were nature you're born with the mm-hmm. traits and i think that's true um because i can see my mom is probably melancholic phlegmatic my dad's choleric sanguine although he has strong melancholic traits as well 
And so, you know, I can see now that I understood this, I see facets of them and my upbringing and why they did this and said that and why this happened rather than that. It really made sense. And I see a lot of that as inbred. But I also agree with what you said, that our family and our conditions in our home uh, shape us. And yeah. so they're going to they're going to hone certain traits and and uh, uh, file file down other parts of our traits that are found in us naturally and we may not realize that's what's happened. Yeah. Hence with vices and virtues, vices can easily grow with a sanguine sanguines can be very sensual and very vain because we're tend towards superficiality. Well, you can imagine in a culture like ours where pleasures abound, we're so hedonistic from pornography to easy accessibility of meds and drugs that are, that are prescribed when they prob- probably shouldn't be, uh, access of, of alcohol. Fast food. Uh, fast food, stimulations, quick uh, change of direction whenever you're watching any media. You're watching something for only two minutes and it switches to something else. This is, is vicious for a sanguine. Vicious meaning it produces the vices that sanguines tend towards. So if a sanguine starts developing vanity or, or lust and sensualities in their upbringing, it becomes extremely difficult for them to overcome this. And then they can begin to experience depression because they don't own themselves. And they might say, I'm a melancholic. And maybe they are, or maybe they aren't. Right. But they, they're starting to experience the natural reaction to the living of a vicious life. Conversely, when you grow in virtue, this is why these temperaments became so uh, prominent and popular within spiritual mentorship and direction, as well as in, in seminary formation. Because if you, as you grow in virtue, that brings a balance to all of these. Our Lord had all four temperaments. Mm-hmm. So the more virtuous we become, the more Christ-like we become. The more Christ-like we become, the more we will see all these virtues begin to flourish in us. We'll develop maybe phlegmatic sense that we don't have. And we can maybe hone and uh, heal and perfect the melancholic, morose sense we might have naturally by simply working on the virtues. Yeah, that's it. I think that's a great description. And I think it's good for listeners who... Maybe you're having trouble figuring out, you know, where they fit. Or maybe they'll say, well, that was kind of me 10 years ago, but maybe it's not as much now. And that might be a good sign. It might be the sign that things are moving in a positive direction. Right. But so I think looking at it from both perspectives, from nature nurture, we could say, well, your upbringing will will change how, uh, how you live this out. So two different melancholic kids born into two very different families are probably going to grow up very differently or two different sanguine kids or... On the other hand, if you have a sanguine and a melancholic in the same family, mm-hmm. they're also going to grow, grow up pretty differently. Right. So there's some element in which something natural is is interacting with, with how you respond to your environment, how you respond right. to stimulation. Right, right. And the beauty of a, of a virtue is when we understand ourselves, so I know I'm sanguine melancholic, so I know that vanity, sensuality, and negativity and judgmentalism are vices mm-hmm. from my two temperaments that I'm very prone to. And then you could throw impatience in there while you're at it. <laughs> and that goes with both of them. These are vices that I know I'm very prone to. So knowing that, I now realize, okay, then here are virtues I need to work on. 
and uh, in, you know, in particular, um, temperance with any sensual delights, um, charity, uh, or or temperance with the tongue, with with judgmentalism. So I know that's a big virtue for me, and the foundational virtue for any any growth in any, no matter what your temperament is, is always humility. This is why Saint Augustine said, "What are the three virtues needed for holiness? Well, humility." Then you've got humility and, oh yeah, and humility. <laughs> because this is how we become more docile to the Holy Spirit. He shows us ourself as it unfolds over time. And then we begin to know what we need to work on in terms of our daily resolution. So we balance out the the vices with, uh, with the virtues. I think that's a great description. I'd add to that, that even in terms of like uh, spiritual activity, so to speak, so... Yeah, I mentioned evangelization earlier. Cholerics and sanguines tend to be much more comfortable talking to other people in general. Right. It could be about buying life insurance. Right. It could be about you know what the weather's like. They're going to just be more at home with that and maybe less at home in the chapel. So evangelization might come easier to them, whereas prayer takes more uh, effort, takes more att- intention and intentionality. Meanwhile, uh, a melancholic might be the exact opposite. You know, if it's go pray for an hour, well, great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a one-on-one conversation with someone I love and trust, mm-hmm. that's exactly my ideal. Right. But talking to another person about that, that's, that's kind of exposing that inner core that you were talking about. Right. So I think that's good. Not, not as a way to, like, give us an excuse to say, oh, I don't need to work on these other areas, but precisely so that we don't give ourselves too much or too little credit. Right. Because you might look like you're doing a fantastic job compared to someone of a different temperament. Right. Or, in a different setting, like you're doing a terrible job. Right. But it's not really a reflection of how well you're responding to the talents you've been given. Right. We have to remember that we are... What's that phrase Matthew Kelly uses? um, Best version of yourself. Best version of yourself. He uses that phrase a lot, and I think the reason why he does is he likes it. He seems to me to be very sanguine, and sanguines (laughs) get attached to... Uh, we get we get little favorite ideas and favorite euphemisms and favorite expressions that we use over and over again. But I think it's very insightful because what he's saying is who we are today is not the same person that God is calling us to be. There's a process. And so long as we understand I'm on a journey, the Lord is calling me to be conformed to him. That's everybody's call, but I'm going to be conformed to him in the way that's unique to me. Mm-hmm. So that gets me excited about Becoming myself, sanguines love self-expression, as do <laughs> melancholics love creativity. We want to be uh, self-expressive and unique. Yet we also, as a sanguine, you want you don't want to feel like you're an oddball out there. Right. Melancholic, you don't care. Sanguine, you do care. You want to belong. And so this whole idea that I'm the best version of myself, I'm growing and becoming, I'm sharing in the universal call to holiness that everybody has. So in that we share together on the one hand. On the other hand, it's unique to me. And so I've got to be open every day to how the Lord is calling me to grow today. Knowing my temperaments helps me know, well, I tend towards this. I tend towards that. For me, traffic is the biggest stumbling (laughs) block in my day. And traffic is when my choleric side comes out because I know I can get to the office in 15 minutes if these guys would get out of my way. I've got I've got my expectations set. I know how to do it. I've got my details managed. Right. You're the one who's throwing the wrench in the works. You need to get out of my way, or I'm, I'm going to go around you on the shoulder to make sure. <laughs> I can. And then I've, I've caused even more, more havoc because of my impatience. 
Traffic is really, I think, an ideal way for us to see how am I doing with my virtue and what are my temperaments. Yeah, that's a that's a great example. Mm-hmm. And it, it shows your keen sensitivity to the environment maybe in a negative mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. All right, let's look at number eight back sure. on the list here. Sure. Uh, tends to take success for granted. But then it says, is a follower, lacks initiative. Yeah, right. So I think um, with, my, with my temperaments, I do see that in me. Going back to what we said earlier about both nurture, nurture and virtue, I remember back when I was in the military, one of the reasons why I joined the military, people, when they get to know me, they're like, I cannot fathom you in the military. And I get that. <laughs> But what drew me to it was a sense of adventure and doing something really out of the ordinary between high school and college. One of the biggest struggles I had when I first got into basic training was learning to take initiative. Mm. If you're walking along and, and I'm not a smoker and I wasn't a smoker then, I've never been a smoker and never will be a smoker. So if there's a cigarette butt laying on the ground, I'm not tuned in to notice it. I'm going to walk right past it. Well, if the drill sergeant notices you walking past a cigarette butt, even though it's not yours, you're not tuned in to be paying attention to it, he's going to drop you for push-ups and yell at you for leaving his training ground messy and not policing it up properly. And all of a sudden, when you're being dropped for push-ups and punished for something you didn't do, but you realize, yep, there is a cigarette butt there. Yep, there is a candy wrapper that somehow got there. Or, yep, there is dirt that someone kicked up on the sidewalk after I swept it an hour ago. I better take care of it now. You learn to notice things and jump on the task before being told to do so, or you get seriously punished. <laughs> it's a great example of nurture. <laughs> it was, it was, and, and virtue, nurture and virtue. It was a very difficult, arduous journey for me in basic training to learn that virtue of initiative. Once I learned it, and how did I learn it? This negative reinforcement, when you're do, being dropped for push-ups and being yelled at, you don't like that. You're, yeah. being, you're being reinforced from two ways, uh, physical pain and, and emotional pain on your, on your soul, on your pride. And it's telling, it's sending a strong message, learn yeah. to do this. Absolutely. So I would agree, initiative is not my natural strong suit, Due to nurture and virtue, I've had to develop it. Great. That's a, a very good distinction. All right, number nine, hearty and cordial, even to strangers, forms acquaintanceship easily. Yes, again, for me, because I'm melancholic, it totally depends on the stranger and the vibe that I get. Because I'm intuitive and impulsive, uh, very, I, can, I can be very emotional how I react to things. Sometimes I'm wrong, but regardless, if I get a negative vibe for somebody... It's just the opposite of that. And I think this is probably more from my melancholic temperament side. I'm going to distance myself. If I get a good vibe vibe from that person, I'll be very interested in them. And fortunately for me, most people I get a good vibe from. And even if it's a neutral vibe, so long as I don't feel a negative vibe, I would say that that's true. Oh, I think that actually is going to tie in really well. Even just the, the speed at which you're making those decisions where you're just going to kind of have a snap judgment that immediately mm-hmm. you're going to feel red light or green light. Right. I think it ties in directly to number 12, which is quick and decisive in movements, uh, pronounced or excessive energy output. So I think that's going to be true both in how you, you carry yourself, but also in terms of maybe those internal movements as well. Right, which is why we don't pay, I don't pay attention to the times I've been wrong. If I start paying attention to all the times I've been wrong on some emotional reaction I've had to something, 
then my natural conclusion is going to be, well, then I shouldn't react so quickly to, to things. Well, that's not necessarily bad unless you're missing opportunities, unless you're missing missing out on some exciting thing, missing out on getting to know this exciting person, missing out on this exciting opportunity. So then I just like, well, I don't want to learn from the times I failed, <laughs> and so I don't, so that I can make a quick, uh, decisive action. Uh, but so what it's produced in me is, is a very unique um, flaw in the virtue of prudence. With prudence, people really struggle with either the deliberation part, they're too impulsive, or they can, they can deliberate, but they can't make a decision, or they can deliberate, make a decision, they can't act. I can do those three. What I tend to do is then second guess myself. Yeah. Here's the two coming together. I'll make the decision and then I'll go, gee, did you deliberate that well enough, Troy? Did you act quick enough? Did you bypass a step here? Going back to the whole details mm -hmm. thing. That's the melancholic side. Absolutely melancholic. And then right I'm there. like, oh, wow, maybe I made the wrong decision. And that can really trip me up. That's, That's a really interesting interplay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so number 13, I feel like we already talked about it. I'm going to read it, but then I'm going to move on to 14. Okay. So number 13 is turns from one activity to another in rapid succession, little perseverance. Yeah. So that's, I mean, very much kind of a, a recurring theme as, right. we're, as right. we're looking at what these look like. Yeah. So for a sanguine, you're going to know you really need to work on perseverance. It's so hard for me to read a book. Because I'll read a little <laughs> paragraph. I'm like, oh, that reminds me of this. And then I had that <laughs> conversation. And that guy said this. I should have said that because I just got that from that paragraph. Now, I wonder what that guy's up to these days. I wonder if I could call him. I wonder if I, how could I get in touch with him? Well, I better make a note that if I hear that again, I'm going to say, and then I realize that 20 minutes have gone past and I've only read a paragraph. Or I've read three other paragraphs and I have no idea what I just read. Right. That is a typical They sanguine. say one of the ways you can tell a sanguine is if the bookshelf has 20 times more books begun than finished definitely <laughs> definitely uh on the plus side number 14 makes adjustments easily welcomes changes makes the best appearance possible right i think that's kind of the positive half of that right. that if if the situation changes you can change with it right. where some temperaments really struggle right well you see with school of faith this is what you just described has been us yeah. Uh, Mike, our, our leader, is very choleric, but he's also very much like this. He He's very impulsive, as I am, and, and, and makes decisions on a dime, changing directions. So there's weaknesses to that, obviously, particularly in the realm of communication and making sure the whole team is still united. <laughs> the positive side of that is you never miss too many opportunities. And when you, as you gather information on your target audiences and what you're dealing with, you can amend and adapt your mission to go out and meet that. So from when School of Faith first started 15 years ago, when we were predominantly a teaching organization, we still do that, but now we're a discipleship evangelization organization. In fact, we're not just doing that. We're trying to instill that missionary way of life in people to raise up Catholics to do that. That's all because we've adapted Absolutely. And recognized, okay, change needs to happen if we're going to be effective. And some people, I think, had more trouble with that kind of transition. Absolutely. Whereas you can kind of call an audible on the play. Right. And, and, you know, something like sales or something like marketing, where you go into a meeting and you're expecting the person to have A, B, C, D, and E, and they, they throw G at you, and you're like, well, okay. Right. It's going to be a different meeting than I was expecting. Right. So, right. yeah, I think there are a lot of positives, too. I'm glad that he mentions this, Father Hawk, mm -hmm. because otherwise it just sounds like 
superficial little hummingbird who can't get anything right, done. Right, right, uh -huh. Yeah, you can see why if you're a spiritual director or a rector, and he was both, where you're dealing with not only character formation, but the spiritual direction of your seminarians, you need to know what the tendencies are of the guys you're forming so that you can do the best job of accentuating the good, the positive, eliminating the negative, as the old song says, <laughs> the old book. I won't make you sing it. Cole Porter, yeah. It might not have been Cole Porter, but anyway, um, yeah, uh, an, old, an old song. And, and, um, uh, uh, and that's what you want to do in a seminary. You want to prepare your future priests in the way that will make them most effective. And it's the same with us in our organization, Joe. I think it's why it's so good for us to have this discussion because I'm always using these temperaments as I'm trying to understand our team how to, to get the most out of each of you and your creative talents, how to help you grow in the areas where you may lack, so that as, as a team, we become very proactive, adaptable, and yet we still need to be consistent and persevering. So trying to draw that in a team Absolutely. is a challenge, but if we can do it, as we do it, we're going to be even more effective. All right, there's two more. Number 15, frank, talkable, sociable, emotions readily expressed does not stand on ceremony. Right. I don't think anyone listening to this is going to have any question. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, so Your ability to share kind of even intimate details of your life very, right. very easily. I had a person tell me one time, she said, Troy, why is it a theological moment with you is a theological hour? And I said, well, why is it you always come back to me for more theological moments? And she said, well, I didn't say I didn't like it. But, uh, but she's right. I have a hard time keeping things short because... The, I, I love to express yeah. what I've come to understand, and I'm like the ever-ready bunny. You've hit play, and I'm <laughs> off. And it's hard to hard to hard to, to to get me to stop for sure. It's hard oh, for me to learn temperance. Although again, you know, being frank, talkable, sociable—these are not even you know—they're not even primarily negative. Obviously, I think you're, you've highlighted that there are things we have to be mindful of. And again, right. I've got the same temperament here. Right. Uh, but there's obviously benefits to that. Oh, yes. I went to a brunch where uh, the host and hostess were uh, melancholic and phlegmatic, and almost everyone at the table was as well. And had I not been there, I genuinely don't know how the conversation would have gotten started because people were happy <laughs> to talk once someone else was. There were like right. two of us who were, right. who were more sanguine, and, and we started and anytime we stopped talking to eat or something it would there'd just be these long periods of silence right. around the brunch table not because right. anyone was upset but just right. because a lot of people are more responsive where i think that can be a very positive trait for making other people feel welcome yes you can see why knowing these temperaments is so helpful in that situation where you can be like okay i tell they're melancholic they're not going to want to talk about themselves i need to find out what they're right. interested in right. what activities they do Find out what drives them, what hobbies. Melancholics are really good about having creative hobbies, and it can be anything from stamp collecting to butterflies to railroad to you name it, like my daughter, music and art, artistic things. If you can figure that out, you can keep a conversation rolling. And you're right, being frank and, and open is very helpful in that situation. It's also very helpful when you yourself are going to spiritual direction. I have been mentoring men in the spiritual life for almost 20 years. When they don't have this, it drives me crazy. Because then i got to figure out how can I get so-and-so to drill down mm -hmm. and share with me something that's deeper. And how do I get away from these superficialities? Because I'm not that way. 
when I meet with my spiritual director, she knows everything what's going on in my life within five minutes. She knows me like the back of, and so too my wife, like the like a back of my hand. She she knows me so well, and that's what I want because right. I want someone to say, Troy, you know you're like this, so of course you responded like that. Keep in mind this is the virtue you need to work on. I'm like, yeah, right. I love that. Yeah. I think, actually, I'm, I'm glad you said it because I think sanguines tend to be the temperament that most likes finding out their own temperament. And I think the reason for that is they're happy to share their life, right. but they're not in an interior uh, kind of self-examining sort of way the way a melancholic is. Right. So they're externally processing themselves. Right. So they're figuring out who they are from their interactions with other people. Absolutely. I mean, the number of times where I've learned what my emotion is from the conversation about whatever's going on, where I don't just have that immediate knowledge right. that, that someone very uh, naturally in tune with themselves interiorly might have, right? but it comes out. So a director is someone who can reflect it back to you and say, here's what you're like based on what you've said. Right. It, it can be a tremendous source of, of self-revelation. It, it is. And and for the work that I do where I'm, I'm doing a lot of public speaking and teaching, while at the same time doing a lot of training in discipleship and evangelization and one-on-one mentoring, where these two traits come in so handy is everything you just said, coupled with the strength of the melancholic. Very introspective, ponders, and melancholics also really are insightful and like insights. Well, if you can get insights into another one-on-one, they're going to appreciate it when you're meeting with them because they're going to feel like he cares about me and he's helping me understand what my next step needs to be in my journey towards Christ. In a small group, when you're discipling, same thing. You read your audience and you realize, okay, I realize they're struggling with this or this one is struggling and those guys aren't, so we need to press pause and catch this guy up. Now that guy feels... Like, I belong. And then when you're in a large group, if you can read your audience well and you know your material well, then you can present it in a way that the large audience walks away with, I understood that. He really spoke to me, even though there's 50, 100, 300 other people in the room. So you can see why those two temperaments can go really go well really together, well together right. doing the work that we do. Absolutely. All right, so the very last one. I think this actually ties into the the example you gave about the restaurant. Uh, number 16 is frequent fluctuations of mood tends to frequent alterations of elation and depression. Right, right. I definitely see this. Um, but I think we, we, we so naturally associate depression with just melancholics right. that the description of sanguines most people have is of just people who are constantly high. Right. But it's actually people who can move. I mean, they often experience a lot of right. joys. Right, But... They can hit those crash moments very quickly. Um, I think one of the ways to tell is whether those crash moments come on and depart quickly or whether they come on slowly and then depart slowly. Right. It's like um, uh, when you're trying to light a fire and you have your kindling in your newspaper. Newspaper will quickly catch and light yeah. up and burn out, but then it catches the next one, lights up and burns out. And then, and you're hoping within that process it catches the kindling wood that'll catch and stay a little longer so then you can throw the log on there and you've got yourself a good fire. I feel that way all the time. Where I'm on, I'm caught fire, I'm very interested on something. The dynamism is at work and all of a sudden it's burned out and then I'm done. I can see this especially at social settings where there's a lot happening 
Mm-hmm. And so I've had this conversation with this person, and now I'm kind of done with you, and I want to move on. <laughs> and and then once I've moved on enough times, now I'm kind of done with the whole situation. I'm ready to go. Uh, so I see this kind of a roller coaster in my desires and interests level in the course of a couple hours in an evening, where I'm I'm on fire, I'm loving it, and then I'm kind of okay. Now this is kind of burnt out. Now I want to move on and do this other thing. And pretty soon, okay, the night I've kind of experienced everything this night has to offer. I'm ready to bolt and go home. Sanguines really love stimulation. Mm-hmm. Melancholics really love, okay, now it's time for me to go home. <laughs> so I experience these highs and lows of stimulation rapidly, rapid fire succession. And then after enough of them, I've had enough of the evening. I'm ready to go home. I notice this when I go, go yeah, out to, to, to events. So I, I definitely can relate to that. Yeah, I like the newspaper as the example. Like lighting the newspaper where it's, it's on. And, and frankly, our Lord talks about this. With the parable of this sower and the seed, the one that has shallow roots, it takes root quickly, mm-hmm. it pops up, but mm-hmm. then it dies. Right, right. And that unchecked, I think, can be kind of the the way both mood and uh, projects and anything else kind of goes, where everything becomes kind of fleeting. Absolutely. I think, again, that goes into understanding your temperament and, and your tendencies. This is why it's so wrong uh, for a culture to say, well, I'm born this way. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not just talking in sexual orientation. We see this in, uh, you know, in people who, who even are habitual criminals. They'll say, look, this is, just, this is just my world. This is the way I react in it. Well, yeah, I know that. But if you don't recognize the vices you're prone to, you're going to situate yourself in concrete with these vices and you're not going to easily break out of them and in case of the sanguine you have this shallow soil and you're never going to have very much depth in your spiritual life and you're never going to be a saint well if you know you have this and you're not satisfied with the fact that you're born that way you're going to work to being the best version of yourself as matthew kelly is fond of saying which means you're going to work on your vices yeah. And you're going to realize I might have these strong traits and tendencies emotionally and I react this way to this or that. But I know those are self-destructive, mm-hmm. especially if they're left alone, because the shallow soil, the, 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 the seed will grow and it will die. And what takes its place? Weeds. Weeds will live in shallow soil forever. And if we live our life that way, we're going to be shallow, superficial people with a lot of vices. So, yeah, I think it's good to say the temperaments are a starting place, not an ending place. That's right. They're not just a green light to never change. They're right. a, a blueprint to show you how you can change. Right. Speaking of ending places, we've hit ours. Ah, it went so quickly. It did. Uh, let's I was close. so stimulated. And now it's over. <laughs> exactly. Now, home. <laughs> now you're going to crash after this. <laughs> right. Let's close in a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. podcast is an initiative of the Holy Family School Faith Institute. To find out more or to see how you can contribute to our mission, check out www.schoolfaith.com.